false believers, secretly brought in and shipped in to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus, so that they may enslave us. We did not submit to them, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be always remain with you. And from those who were supposed to be acknowledged leaders, what they actually were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those leaders contributed nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel for the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel for the circumcised. For he who worked through Peter, making him an apostle to the circumcised, also worked through me in sending me to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who were acknowledged pillars, recognised the grace that had been given to me, they gave to Barnabas and me the right hand of fellowship, agreeing that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They asked only one thing, that we remember the poor, which was actually what I was eager to do. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord God, we give thanks for your glorious word this morning. We pray it would dwell in our hearts, for we ask in faith, in the name of Jesus. Amen. It's wonderful to be with you. It's very warm. I apologize if I wilt mid-talking. I will do my best, but it is, while it gets cooler outside, I think it is still increasing in here. Um, So a little recap from last week. I don't know how many of you were here for Galatians 1. Uh, We had a great introduction. Galatians is likely a very early book, um, and we get this idea because of the issue that's at hand in this particular set of verses. Um, The the difference between the circumcised and uncircumcised uh, was talked about at the uh, Council of Jerusalem in AD 49. So we know it's probably in the mid-40s at this point. And uh, Paul is talking to a set of churches which he visited on his first missionary journey, and they were Derby, um, Iconium and Lystra. This is a Gentile, to- uh, Gentile church, um, and it's unlikely to have had Jewish leadership. Uh, this is all in the introduction of where we're going to get to, um, but it's necessary information to understand what we hear about in the passage today. But it seems curious that Paul talks about Jerusalem. If this is a Gentile-led church, Why is he fussing about what Jerusalem thinks, which was likely a Jewish-led church? Most notably in chapter 1, we hear about James, the brother of Jesus, who was um, their apostle. Uh, And Paul seems to have met with James, though he doesn't seem to have met with many others. Uh, And we, from church history, assume that James was the apostle who, for his life, looked after the Jerusalem church. So, Paul has been creating faith and nurturing faith in a Gentile-led 
area and across a series of Gentile-led churches, but James and Peter, Peter we know from the book of Acts as well, they've been mainly in Jewish-led areas. And so the reading that we've heard of boils down to one fact, that Paul has been leading in these Gentile areas, um, and then there are various Jewish-led areas, including Jerusalem, and they have ended up believing something different from Paul. And Paul is worried. And he's worried for two reasons. Firstly, there is only one gospel. There is only one good news. Have we suddenly created two good newses? And secondly, if not, have we created two classes of Christians? Have we created first-class Christians, maybe Jewish first Christians, and second-class Christians, Gentile first Christians? And this worries Paul. So Paul is adamant in in all of his letters that we are saved by grace. Uh, And this is a real key. And this is something he uses to to think about um, the differences between the churches. That we are saved through the person of Jesus. Um, Not by our outward actions or not by our outward appearance, but we come to faith through our inward resolve and we come to faith through what Jesus has done for us and our acknowledging of that truth. If we get that wrong in our own heads, we can tie ourselves in knots. We can end up thinking that maybe it's about us. And, and Paul was worried about that. It may not have seemed that obvious, but actually this is what is really at stake with this particular reading After my talk, we'll have another song, and actually we're going to think about that ourselves. Are there times in our own lives when we've added to the gospel, when we've created extra hurdles for ourselves, when we haven't acknowledged that actually it's all that Jesus has done for us? But that's for later. And sorry that this has been a little sort of technical introduction and a bit of a sort of pacey start, but this was the sort of intro. These are the things we need to know in order to get into our passage tonight. So um, if you have your Bibles with you, it's page 184, Galatians 2, verses 1 to 10. Do have it open uh, and keep mulling over it. It's quite a short passage. You can keep seeing it. So... Firstly, Paul is returning to Jerusalem. And we actually hear about his first trip at the end of chapter 1, which was read at the end of last week. He met with James, the brother of Jesus, but he remained relatively inconspicuous, um, apart from one rumour that the one who used to persecute us is now uh, preaching the faith. That's a a wonderful line, I think. You know, it was, wouldn't you love that rumour about you that, you know, Um, the great persecutor of the church is actually turned and and for the glory of God he's become like us Uh, he didn't seem at this point to go yeah that's actually me Um, but that was um, his first trip and now he's come back on his second trip and it seems by revelation of God he seems prompted by God but also he seems to do it in a very mature way. He doesn't come in and burst in. He goes in in private and he meets with those 
who, um, who are of influence, and he really kind of um, works this out with them. What does the gospel actually mean? Because I think, without meaning to, the church in Jerusalem has been going on the way that they wanted to. Um, God has been at work in Jerusalem for a very long time, Paul is in another place, and he has seen God at work in brand new ways, and he's got a greater sense of who God is. So Paul comes to Jerusalem, and it says, to make sure that I was not running or had run in vain. I mean, that's soul-destroying, isn't it? That's sort of saying, have I either got this wrong, or am I just wasting my time? But luckily... I don't know, Paul doesn't mince his words sometimes, does he? But it seems that they do come to a reconciliation. But Paul sees the potential for two churches, two classes of churches, and this is what he believes is at stake. I think what the Jerusalem church had accidentally come to believe Jesus was, was an extension of the Jewish faith. And you could say Jesus came from the Jewish faith and, you know, we don't lose the Old Testament. And that is absolutely true. But Paul, who had gone out into the world, who had seen God at work, who had seen miracles, had seen that God was creating a worldwide family. He was seeing something fundamentally different from what the church in Jerusalem had seen. Neither was true or not true, but actually Paul's wider perspective called into question some of the practices that had ended up happening in Jerusalem. And so Paul was actually keen to show them how God was acting and therefore how not to make life more difficult for the expansion of the gospel. So Paul had two missionary journeys in the book of Acts, and so we find Iconium, Lystra and Derby in his first trip um, I don't know if you have a map at the back of your, or your Bible or your Bible at home. Um, friends of mine would always say, you know, what's a good Bible? And it was one with nice, colourful, good maps in the back. And definitely I have one um, Bible at home with really nice maps. And it has the, the lines of the, the journeys of Paul. And it does sort of enliven and make life easier. But this is south-central Turkey, um, at least three congregations that Paul has gone to for a relatively short amount of time. He's formed them, but left them in their infancy, and this um, letter is part of helping them to mature. But the fact that talking about Jerusalem happens in the book of Galatians shows that probably there was regional influence, that even in central Turkey, they would have heard how Jerusalem was acting. There was probably movement between the two. And actually, there was the potential of some negative influence, even accidentally, um, that the Jerusalem churches would turn the people of Galatia um, and Asia more generally um, backwards rather than forwards. God had expanded into a worldwide family. But if they saw what the Jerusalem church was doing as an ideal, they would end up accidentally going backwards in their faith. So what seems to have actually been going wrong in their way of thinking? I found a, an interesting thing in a commentary that put a pair of phrases that put it very succinctly. 
what was at stake. And they said the problem could be summed down to these two statements, that the Jerusalem church believed that not all Jews are Christians. That's true. We could probably agree on that. But all Christians must become Jews. And maybe this is not surprising because the Jerusalem church was predominantly Jewish-led. And so they probably felt that, you know, we have met with God. We have met Jesus. We have met the living Jesus. The Holy Spirit is with us. Therefore, to meet Jesus and to meet the Holy Spirit, you probably have to be like us. And so the first Jews who had then met the risen Jesus, they, that was their experience. But Paul had got an experience that was radically different. And so he was coming back to show them that it was fundamentally different. So after Pentecost, there weren't preconditions about coming to faith. The Spirit of God is poured out on all flesh, it says, and that all people would equally meet with God. It wasn't God's chosen people, a, a remnant who were Israel, but instead God had poured out his Spirit on Pentecost. And so actually what we find in Galatians is that Paul was worried about extra preconditions. He was worried about actually going back on what had happened in the book of Pentecost. It seems like to add in that you must be circumcised is to suddenly say, oh, but let's go back. Let's, I know God has said, you know, um, all flesh can, and can meet with God, but actually come back and, and become like us and, and then go around. It sort of becomes a sort of a U-turn, adding in an extra precondition. And this is where Paul was worried because that wasn't grace for him. Grace was um, given to them. They didn't deserve it and they didn't merit it. They hadn't earned it. And so a quick recap about the gospel of grace because if we get this, this sets us free. This is what enlivens us uh, and sets our hearts ablaze for Jesus. Grace is the thing that brings us into relationship with God. It's not deserved. And so sin, sin is the collective term for everything that keeps us away from God, all the things that separate us from the holy God. Because God is so holy, when we are held up against him, of course we are going to look shabby. Of course. That is sin. That is the, the gap between us and God. And so in the Old Testament, the people of God had the law. It had sacrifices that could be made to atone for their wrongdoings that kept them away from God. Um, there was one with a goat um, where you would ritually pass your sins onto that goat and you would send it off into the wilderness, hoping that it went as far from you as possible. Guess where we get the term escape goat from? And then there were also the laws of God. They were how should we live. They weren't for people to feel smug about themselves. They were to make the people distinct from the people around them. You know, if you follow God, how do you look any different? And so the laws of God were to create them, to make them more distinct. But it 
It told them to be obedient. It told them to come towards God and not away from them. They were, sometimes when we're growing up, we're taught things and we don't understand them. But we're told, you know, it's for your good. And it's not till later that we necessarily understand why. And so the laws of God were like that. So the people of God in the Old Testament had those laws. They learned how to walk with God. They learned to be obedient. But also, through those laws, they actually saw that they couldn't live up to God. They saw that they were always going to fall short. And that led to a few things. Sometimes they would wander away. But that was the wrong thing. They were meant to go towards God. They were meant to say, God, I need you even more to be like you, to, to lean into your love. And so this is so important because the laws of God were good. They were designed to make them distinct, but they were made to lean into God, not to feel good about themselves. But come the time of Jesus, you have someone who walks up to Jesus saying, proudly I've done all these things since I was a boy. Doesn't that make me look good, Jesus? What do I still lack? Do you remember that one? But Jesus sends him away sad, doesn't he? With a single request of fulfilling the law. It says, in order to be perfect. That's in order to be in full, complete fulfillment of the law. Sell your possessions for money for the poor, and then you'll have treasure in heaven. And what happens? He walks away sad. All because he thought that the law was there to make him feel good about himself. But it wasn't. It was there to make him lean into God, to need God more, to trust him more. And so that man needed grace. That man needed grace as much as we need grace. It wasn't one system in the Old Testament and another system for the New Testament. What has changed now for all people? Joel 2 talked about that God would pour out his spirit on all flesh, something that the day of Pentecost picked up, something that was prophesied many years before. But when God's spirit is poured out on all people, grace is poured out on all people, not with the precondition that they have already gone through the law and they have lived up to the law or been separated by the law. So we need grace today. The people of Galatia needed the grace of God. And the church in Jerusalem needed grace as well. It was for this reason that Paul's annoyed. He's annoyed because at this point, that that the Jerusalem church has said, all people need to become Jews. Paul said, no, all people need grace. And so actually to say they all need grace, but in order to get grace, actually we go through an extra precondition. Paul has said, we have gone backwards. And all this to say, becoming a Jew, becoming circumcised, becoming the the separate um, people of God that we saw in the Old Testament 
it wasn't that that made them perfect. It was realizing their need for grace that was what made perfect. It was realizing that it wasn't about them. It was something that the Old Testament was all meant to be. We see the fulfillment of it in the person of Jesus, but actually we've always seen it through the book or through all through the Bible. But now the family of God has increased uh, and they didn't need these outward signs or additional rituals. And that would be going back uh, and showing that actually they didn't understand the whole point of grace in the first place. So Paul has straightened this out uh, with the Jerusalem church and ministry um, and his ministry was going on um, and the Jerusalem church at the end said, all right, we've, we've straightened this out. One precondition. What, what is the one precondition that it says um, towards the end of our verses? It says, um, the one thing I, we ask for you is that you remember the poor. After all of that, has the Jerusalem church suddenly added another U-turn? They haven't. But it's intriguing that after all of this straightening things out, they had, oh, one more precondition, Paul. But he says, no, that's absolutely okay. Because actually, this is not an addition. This is absolutely in line with having received grace. Um, do any of you know the worship leader, David Ruiz? He wrote the song, I will worship, I will worship. Um, sort of, he was sort of big sort of in the 90s and the 2000s, and he had um, a tattoo, still does, of Remember the Poor on his forearm. Um, and he used to tour around the UK quite a bit. Um, but a friend of mine used to sort of give him a bit of trouble for it, because um, it starts on his left arm from his wrist out to his elbow, um, and he used to love these sort of short, um, short sleeve shirts and he used to play his worship music and, uh, and he used to love it. But the problem was the R used to get covered by his shirt. Uh, and, and at that point, it says, remember the poo, um, <laughs> which is a little bit awkward. And, and his friend used to just absolutely rib him for it. Uh, despite being the preacher, he would invite, invite on his little circuits. And so actually, when it comes to remember the poor, which we see throughout the Old Testament, and we see here. Unfortunately, that's what comes to mind at the first time I, um, I remember this verse, so I apologize for that, but um, I couldn't help but telling that slightly distracting story. Was this now suddenly a new restriction? David obviously didn't think it. He absolutely felt it was the core part of what he was doing. It was an overflow for him. For him, he would talk about it being the proof of being fully in the grace of God. If you think about receiving God as being a bit like a, a computer, it's not like adding a little bit. It's literally like taking out the hard drive and putting a new one. It is completely rewiring the whole. And so once you have your eternal perspective, once you have your heavenly perspective, we're no longer self-centered. This is a real sort of acid test of whether we have fully received God. Do we sort of loose those sort of bonds of fear of um, our earthly challenges? Because when we have an eternal perspective, our earthly challenges are put in perspective. That's not to say we won't have earthly challenges. We will, just like everyone else. 
but we have a heavenly perspective which puts our earthly challenges in perspective. And so blessing the poor is an overflow of grace. It's not an extra rule, it's a natural consequence of everything we do. It's like, um, like a tap of water. It's like you know the tap in your kitchen. That tap always wants to let the water out. And it's when you open the tap that it comes gushing out. You don't need a pump. Um, I don't know if you've ever had a leak in your house. I had a massive one in my last house and the uh, cistern in the roof overflowed. Uh, and, you know, we had um, cascades coming down. That water always wants to be released. Did you see any pictures from Islington uh, this week? They had a big burst water main. Uh, they were under over a metre of water, just from one burst water main. Water wants to get out, and the grace of God wants to be uh, released, and it's just, you know, uh, unleashing that tap. And so the people of Jerusalem say, you know, remember the poor, and Paul says, absolutely, this is part of the overflow of grace. It's sort of interesting that the Jerusalem church may have been seen as, as a bit of a first-class church versus second-class church, but more likely the Jerusalem church was probably poorer than the Gentile church. And so they knew poverty, they knew generosity, and they were saying to Paul, while you're going out and remembering these new churches that you're forming, remember there are always those less fortunate than yourself. And Paul says, absolutely, I will do that. And so in summary today, Paul was writing to show that it's sometimes easy to fall into a little trapping that means we turn the gospel the wrong way around, that we lose grace because we add to it. As soon as we add anything to grace, we lose its power, we rob it of its truth. I think of it like a subtle robbery of glorious grace. That is what Paul is writing about today. Don't let there be a subtle robbery of the glorious grace that you have received, Jerusalem. Don't make it harder for people. And that is the sort of nub of what we have here this evening. It can be really subtle, but what is that subtle robbery that was um, out there for them? After our next song, we'll have a couple of slides and about 10 minutes to think about um, two questions. And it's about whether we've had moments in our lives when we've had a little thought pattern which has um, threatened to rob us of the true grace of God. So, should we pray together? Lord God, thank you for your grace. Thank you that we have not earned it or merited it, but that you have longed to pour out your spirit. Thank you for your holy people throughout the Old Testament and that you sent your son. And we pray that we would never add to your gospel, but that we would take you at the word that we read about in Scripture, that we would fully trust you. Help us when it's challenging. Help us when we tie ourselves in knots, 
when we don't believe that you are fully good. And we long to to see more of your goodness in your life. Help us to be obedient to your word. And we long to lean into you this evening. For we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.